Wandering Man, episode three. So today I'm walking out south from the Carmarthen campus uh, along Pentacleth Road, which is just on the edge of Carmarthen town. So within a couple of hundred metres out into the countryside and it's funny how the, uh, the different campuses of the university have their own character so Lampeter and uh, Ceredigion I mean it is a small town but at the campus there the main thing you notice is that uh, there's, a, there's a hill overlooking the university uh, and so lectures are accompanied by the bleating of sheep and the occasional low-flying aircraft um, so jets practicing their low-flying low so that gives Lambert of its character in Swansea, there's uh, two, two campuses. The one down by the docks I talked about before, where you get the, uh, the siren for the swing bridge down by the docks and uh, the building work and seagulls. And the, uh, the business school, which is next to the railway station, so, again, in the background of lectures, you get the chugging of the trains waiting in the station and the platform announcements. So you've got these very distinctive characters. For the Carmarthen campus, the main characteristic is that Often the air is heavy with the scent of muck spreading because the uh, surrounding dairy farms uh, like to look after their fields. And so, uh, as I say, the university uh, takes on a tinge of the countryside. So I've now just come, come to the edge of the, the housing and past the big farm on the left as always with these farms they're great massive warehouses almost um, for mysterious purposes things that always amazes me about farmyards you see all these bits of equipment hanging around there you know, so they've got tractors and ploughs and all sorts of different attachments to go on the back and trailers and diggers and all sorts and that well you know how much things cost now these are thousands and thousands of pounds tens of thousands of pounds each so you have all this equipment which is just sitting there basically all year and some of it's only brought out once a year you know for a day or two and that's it so it's, 
not hard to see why farmers have a problem uh, trying to make any money. They've sunk all this capital into buying the equipment and everything else on the off chance that at some future date they will be able to sell their produce and pay it back. So, well, farming is always a perilous business and you know, people say farmers always complain. Well, in a way that's fair enough. I think you could recast that to say farmers always worry and the right to worry. Because um, it's no good to them if, they, uh, if they've done a good job and uh, maybe they've even produced some food. That doesn't mean they're going to be able to sell it. They're certainly not sell it as a profit. Uh, remember there was that argument a few years ago about milk prices in supermarkets um, where it was actually costing farmers money, they said, to uh, sell the milk at the price that was to be paid. And obviously that's not long-term sustainable. But I did some uh, research about this uh, long time ago now, 20 years ago, um, into the Great Rebuilding, which uh, was a theory proposed by uh, W.G. Hoskins, I think, that uh, essentially the, looked at the, the fact that a lot of farms in, in England um, in the 18th century um, were rebuilt in a substantial sort of stone style with uh, um, sort of evidence of affluence um, and by looking at the date stones of farm buildings you could look at the chronology and there was a theory that um, because of the increased output because of the agricultural revolution this was then being fed into the construction of, uh, of new houses you make the money you build a house, that's the theory behind it. Um, so I was looking at this in detail, trying to tie up, well, we know when we, we, we can establish, for example, uh, what the price of wheat was um, in any given year. And so theoretically, you could work out if there was any correlation between those date stones and the, uh, the types of harvest. Um, and the conclusion I reached was that there wasn't a strong correlation. I mean, the, the data sets were um, hard to establish. But actually, I mean, even if there was a theoretical correlation, in practice there might not be, because um, if you produce a lot of corn, then that means, the, or if everybody does, that means the price is low. So you may actually have done, you may earn less money than for a poor year where if you just happen to uh, produce a lot, a, a lot more than your neighbours, um, you would actually make more, more profit from a poor year than, uh, than you would from a good year. So, um, so as I say, it's not that surprising, that's a bit complicated. Um, there's some other issues with the, the great rebuilding idea anyway. Um, which is basically all to do with survival, that uh, um, people were obviously living in houses before. Um, it's just a question of 
well, it's more the other way around. It's not that everything was rebuilt in 1750. It's that the buildings that were built in 1750 are still here, whereas the ones that were there before aren't still here. Um, whether they were replaced or not down. Um, so it's a, so it's not it's actually telling you the opposite in terms of the change. So I've come down, come down the valley now to just come maybe just here. Uh, it's a small river here to uh, Tawalan. This is uh, this is called Tawalan, uh, which is uh, quiet church would be the quiet churchyard. The Llan that you see everywhere in Wales um, is derived originally from the ancient British land, meaning field. Um, so it's a word that's used for enclosure. Um, but, uh, you know, by convention, the Llan in Wales normally means the enclosure around the church or sacred. Uh, sacred enclosure. Um, so here, Tawalan, a quiet church, I suppose, or churchyard. There's no actual church there, and in fact, well, it's not entirely clear where that name, but that, what that name is attached to. Just stopping for a breath here. This is a bit where the, there's a stream that comes down out of the woods and goes down into a culvert under the road. But yes, there is a historical reference to Tawalan being a, uh, a leper's hospital um, somewhere around here um, in the 1400s. Uh, leprosy was one of the big problems in medieval, late medieval uh, Britain. I know there's some debate about whether, about what exactly they were describing with leprosy. As I understand it, it's not quite the same as um, what we would call it today. <coughs> but the key thing is, <coughs> although they had limited understanding of uh, contagion and so on. They recognised the benefits of isolating some people from the rest of the population rather than bunging them all in together. And one of the uh, main ways that the late medieval church sought to benefit the community was by caring for these people and sort of caring for people in general because hospitals in the modern sense didn't exist. If you were lucky you had your own doctor and if you weren't you were stuck. Sorry, let me slow down a bit. Going up the, the one steep climb. So I've climbed up out of the valley. I've come up 
I can check the altitude on the map. There's something like 200 feet. There's a lot more. Um, <clears throat> and this lane is cut deeply into the into the hillside. Uh, what you call a hollow way in England. Uh, the banks are about a metre high, top with a fairly modern hedge. And behind it, on both sides, you've got pasture. The thing with hollowways is that, well, they tend to get cut out by a mixture of straightforward rain uh, washing, washing away the soil downhill from the track and uh, and obviously if you're sending animals and wheeled carts and things along the track you're creating ruts and breaking up the surface so over a period of centuries you can end up with these very deeply uh, sunk roads uh, below the level of the, um, of the surrounding land Of course, you know, it's no, no necessary indication of antiquity, since it's quite capable of cutting a, of creating a cutting for a modern road. Well, I'll just come back to what I was saying about the hedges. So here, it's what, early January now, 2020. The, um, the hedges here have been recently trimmed. Uh, the farmers come along and basically cut cut all of the uh, the branches to the same height, which is a, a quick and easy way of of uh, managing your hedges. Um, these seem to be all of one species. I can't tell which species at the moment because there's no leaves or buds or anything showing. Um, you've probably heard of the theory of hedgerow dating which um, in a way like the great rebuilding is uh, it's one of these uh, hypotheses that were chucked out um, on a whim almost uh, back in the mid 20th century and has since gone through a cycle of sort of belief and adoption and then more recently testing and partial rejection or wholesale rejection um, so the idea is and I think no, it's not Max Planck the person who invented it They observed that the hedgerows, 
that were older um, had a greater species diversity than, uh, than the new ones. So it's particularly obvious, I think, in a uh, enclosed landscape where um, much of England, much of northern England, uh, was enclosed in the 19th century um, from Act of Parliament. Uh, what they did was they took all of the common land in the parish, ran both in terms of the common fields and the, and the uh, areas of common pasture, affected that all up and they then divided it fairly between all the inhabitants. Uh, they should be completely rewriting the landscape. And uh, because they were working on the whole parish at a the time, they would tend to do this very neatly by uh, filling out a ruler and carefully ensuring that everybody's land allotment, which would then be uh, free for them to choose how they managed it, whether they used this pasture or as arable, and if so, what plants, um, rather than having to agree that with their other commoners. So, uh, so yeah, so they, they had these, their own blocks of land and these blocks of land are characterised by lots of straight boundaries um, and in many cases the boundaries were marked out with a, fair, a hedge, um, probably initially a fence but then later a hedge. Um, so these 19th century hedges um, tend to be all of one species. Uh, or at least they were when they were planted. And uh, so the idea is that uh, so if, if the, the ideal model, the platonic ideal of the hedgerow dating system is that um, if you assume that every hedge starts with a single species of shrub being planted at intervals along the boundary, and then be managed from then on to stop it uh, growing into trees, then uh, over time other species will colonise the hedgerow, um, mainly by seeds coming in from bird droppings. And so gradually over time the, uh, the, the species present in the, in the hedgerow will become more diverse. So that's, uh, that's the theory behind it. Um, so in practice, how you apply this method is that you take a 100 metre stretch of, of a hedgerow and count how many shrub species there are. Um, and that'll give you a number between one and 10, say 12 possibly. Um, and the 
simple calculation is that every species represents 100 years so that if you've got a, uh, a hedgerow that's got 10 species in it in that 100 meters then you're arguing that that is a thousand years old and would go back to um, back to doomsday um, which is not to say that's impossible there are boundaries which have been fixed since doomsday and uh, no, this boundaries might have had some sort of marker um, but as, uh, as with the great rebuilding there's an issue about exactly what what these numbers mean to start off with what we know um, when people are planting hedges they don't plant single species hedges all the time uh, certainly to start with it's much better if you have two or three different species so you've got some which are fast growing and will fill out and produce a barrier very quickly while the others take longer so if you so it could well be that um, your parliamentary enclosure hedge um, from the 1850s um, is contains three species or contains three species when it was put in and obviously that would give you a falsely wrong, falsely early date for your new hedge um, and then of course the other side of it is that um, sort of there's no real reason why it should be one per century um, I believe it was the dating was derived from a sample of looking at a few hedges where they knew the dates and they, that's how they built up the, the model um, but yeah there's no reason why that should be linear at all and then of course all sorts of things can happen to hedges they can be burned, they can be ripped up they can be um, replaced with fences or replanted um, or suffer from disease all sorts of things can happen to hedges and so the fact that any particular hedge is on the same alignment as the boundary you can trace back to doomsday doesn't mean the hedge has been there all the time so uh, it's it's one of those attractive ideas that people like the idea that you can tell at a glance how old a hedge is um, as opposed to the reality well no you can't um, that's a nice surprise and in fact I know there was a study done of an area of Gower which you know the Gower Peninsula um, just west of Swansea um, this is an area where um, this medieval landscape is uh, easily traceable I was going to say substantially intact but certainly um, the pattern of, of uh, farms and fields there is survived fairly well and uh, I know there was a study done of um, based on some good early estate maps that were available um, and on the basis of that 
uh, they were able to show that um, there were newer boundaries with diverse species and older boundaries with undiverse species. Um, so basically it was a test case showing that the, um, the methodology would not be producing useful results. But you can see the temptation that um, if you like our classic British landscape of hedges and trees and fences and gates and uh, fields that uh, they look like they've been there a long time and uh, so the temptation is to assume that these are survivors um, even if we know they're not. And I can remember back, back when I was a kid there used to be a, a very strong feeling people had basically the trees had been there forever um, and the idea of cutting down a tree was seen as a sort of automatically a bad idea um, that assumption that all trees have been there a long time and they ought to be left alone um, and I think well, my impression at least is that uh, that idea has changed a bit now, I think people are much more aware that trees are managed like other crops. Um, they can be cut down. Um, you know, replanting is uh, an option. Um, you can argue that you know, it's an option that might help for the future, but it's not much hope for the moment. Um, but as I say, I think well, it was possible, of course, when I'm thinking about this, but I'm just remembering my child's perspective. As to a child, trees are just part of the furniture. You know, they were there before I turned up, and they don't seem to change very much over time. And so it's possible just that um, as I've grown older, I've, my perspective has changed. I recognise that things are coming and going. Um, but having said that, I do think there is a, there's genuinely, that genuinely, um, there was that shock that people used to have about having trees cut down. And it still crops up every now and then. Um, there's a case recently at uh, Pentlegare down in Swansea where there's a, an extensive parkland landscape uh, with trees which were planted in the early to mid 1800s um, so very mature oak, well, mixed woodland and uh, for a housing development uh, they had marked out, they said well they could have the housing built there but they need to make sure that they left the tree standing Unfortunately, um, in the process of building the houses, um, the tree was uh, cut down. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's one of those things that happens on building sites. Um, I, I always feel it's a miracle that uh, 
anything like that is survives through untouched into the completed project because uh, there's so many things can go wrong. I can remember when I started working with um, the construction industry I was an archaeologist and uh, <clears throat> it used to drive me mad that we'd carefully draw up a plan of the proposed development and we'd work out where we thought the archaeological impacts might be where there might be the buried buildings or whatever that uh, we wanted to preserve safe uh, within the development footprint and uh, so we would ask them to nudge nudge a building foundations just nudge them around a bit or reconfigure them to keep the archaeology safe and uh, so we go through this process with the designers, the architects and you end up with an agreed plan and then uh, yeah, they went on site while they were doing the building and every time there would be something like oh we discovered there was a water pipe where we weren't expecting it or we've had to change the layout of the foundations because the different materials are being used um, all the ground conditions different to what is expected um, anyway so what would happen on site would be that the we would be there expecting it to be built as planned while uh, say the builders saw that as more of a initial draft and they would then do their jazz version of construction to end up with something that was a, a variation on the theme um, with unforeseen um, archaeological impacts. Um, I know in the case of um, there's now a massive warehouse um, for Tesco uh, down on the Gwent levels uh, near Magor Services. So the Gwent Levels is a massive area of estuary. Um, it's been protected by flood defences for just less than a thousand years, I would argue. Debate about that. But anyway, um, so it's essentially in a massive area of floodplain. Um, and uh, so when they were building this great big warehouse, I mean, one of the reasons they like the landscape is it's nice and flat so it's easy to build on. So um, I say massive, it was several hundred metres long, I don't remember exactly the dimensions. Anyway, the, um, so they were going to build, build this and uh, we knew that within the, uh, the silts of the floodplain um, there were potential at least for there to be buried Roman remains. The Roman ground surface was about a metre or two below the present ground surface. So it could be on that Roman ground surface there would have been remains of Roman activity. And so we uh, uh, had a long talk with uh, Tesco about, about this. Um, 
and what we agreed in the end was that um, the best way of preserving the bulk of the archaeology was for the building to be built on piles so that they would drive piles down into the clay um, and then they would use the piles um, to support the building and everyone agreed that was the, the best idea. From an archaeological point of view there was a slight disadvantage because um, the bit of archaeology actually in, under the pile would be destroyed and there would be no way of us seeing what was happening. But we agreed overall that was a reasonable compromise um, so that you know, we could accept that we would lose perhaps 5% of the potential archaeology unseen um, with a fairly good idea of preserving the other 95%. So we got this agreement in place and they started building. And then they decided, ah, there's no point just having a warehouse, we'd have a car park or a lorry park for the massive lines of lorries to um, to bring the goods in and out, um, you know, like all the distribution warehouses. Um, which, I mean, to be fair, they knew it was going to be there, um, but it wasn't uh, cost-effective or wasn't necessary for them to have piled foundations because um, the car park area wouldn't actually be bearing much weight. Um, so they thought, oh well, that's no problem, we'll just uh, concrete it. And then when they come to build it, all right, so there's all those stories you could end up like this. But um, when they come to build it, they realise that actually the, um, the clay of the floodplain um, isn't sufficiently stable to support the concrete slab. And so instead, what they were going to do was to remove the top metre of, um, of, the, of, the, of the silt um, and replace it with rubble and then build the, build the concrete slab on top of that. So that was the plan, which is in itself, as you can understand where they're coming from. The unfortunate impact is that having lived with a 5% damage to the archaeological resource under the warehouse, um, potentially we were looking at 100% damage for these deposits um, of the lorry park and so we insisted that when they came to do this work as they removed the clay from the um, ready to put, put the rubble down um, that we would have a watching brief which meant that basically we would be out there um, watching the machines working to see whether there was any archaeological evidence that was being affected, and if so, um, we would dive in and record it, um, which is sort of common practice um, in commercial archaeology. Um, I've always been a bit dubious about the, um, the, the value of watching briefs because 90% of the time you can't see anything and to be honest you wouldn't be sure you were seeing anything even if you could see something um, and if something does turn up 
then that's a, that's a headache for everyone um, because you then have to delay the work while you get on and do, do what you need to do um, and have arguments about that. Um, it's much neater for everyone because if you deal with the archaeology in advance uh, under controlled conditions and then um, and then just hand over the site to the developer and say go on build it now we've done everything we want to anyway yes yeah, so on this occasion um, they just in the very corner as luck would have it of the area they were clearing back <coughs> we uh, we my colleague Martin Lawler found some uh, Roman timbers uh, sticking out uh, about a metre down and uh, it became clear as he investigated that this was actually the, the remains of a, um, a Roman boat and uh, this is what is now known as the Barlands Farm boat. Um, there's a several hundred page monograph written about it um, that it's a survivor from that Roman period of use of the levels it was a from memory it was a smallish boat about seven meters long um, with a fairly flat bottom small sail and uh, paddles so presumably used for coastal travel up and down the Ch Bristol Channel and you know people often say you know what's the best thing you found as an archaeologist and um, you know isn't it great to find all this stuff and uh, uh, people are often surprised when the archaeologists say well I'd rather preserve it than dig it up because um, that's our say our mature attitude is that uh, things are relatively safe underground, best to leave them there if you can, and we'll just deal with things that are going to be destroyed anyway. So but having said that, the important thing with a, a find is that once you've, once you've got it, you've got to deal with it properly, and that's one of the cases where it was dealt with properly. And, uh, believe that the, uh, the boat is on display at uh, Newport Museum. Uh, just have a pause of thought there. I believe Newport still has still got a museum, although there is legitimate doubt. They've had a bit of a hard time recently um, with their approach to uh, funding cuts has been to cut things like museums. Anyway, <clears throat> so that's, I can't remember now how I got onto the subject of how archaeologists <laughs> deal with the uh, uh, developments. But uh, it's an interesting area, this whole area of sort of ethics in archaeological practice. Because um, as I say, the main thing is the, the responsibility that lies on the individual who finds something um, that they've got to react appropriately and uh, I can remember I was watching uh, Detectorists recently 
And uh, one thing that annoyed me about it was that the uh, in series three, I think, the last series anyway, um, that uh, uh, Mackenzie Cook's character, whose name I can't remember, um, who was an active detectorist, he wanted to become an archaeologist, and so he does a part-time degree and um, eventually graduates, and he uh, starts working on an archaeological site, on a construction site. And um, in the course of doing that, he uh, uncovers a bit of Roma, Roman mosaic, um, and is naturally very excited to discover something. Um, finding mosaics is uh, not something that happens to every archaeologist. Um, I think I've ever found one that's unknown. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so finding a new mosaic Roman floor um, is a very exciting thing and he understandably gets very excited. And he, uh, he tells the supervisor about it. He says, oh, you've got to, got to stop, the, uh, stop the building work because we obviously we need to um, make sure we make a record of this before it's destroyed. Um, so yes, he does the right thing. But the supervisor um, decides that well, doing that would be too much trouble. It would involve difficult arguments with the developer and they've got a construction timetable to keep to. So he, uh, so the supervisor um, covers up and destroys the evidence, deletes the photos um, and uh, pretends that the discovery was never made. Um, so yeah, so that was a um, one of the story arcs in the, in, in the series Detectorist. Um, but as I say, although in general, I'd say that uh, the series is quite good. Well, I mean, it's good. It's good in general, but quite accurate in a lot of its uh, sort of uh, factual basis. Um, I don't believe that that supervisor would have made that decision. Now, the reasons people become archaeologists, as Mackenzie Cook would say, is uh, to find things, find things out. Um, and that I would have expected a supervisor in that situation to actually stand on the side of the archaeology and say, no, this is important, it needs to be preserved. Um, or at least it needs to be looked at. Can't be destroyed and swept under the carpet. Um, and as I say, I think, well, having I would say certainly among the people I work with as archaeologists, um, I think they would all agree very strongly that's what they ought to do. Um, there are occasions when um, the developer won't listen or 
whatever. Uh, it can't always be done. The right outcome doesn't always happen. But, so I would have expected an archaeologist in that situation to have uh, stood up to be counted. And I can remember, actually coming back to my friend Martin, I can remember we had a planning meeting uh, with the Tesco construction team um, sitting in their massive boardroom there were I don't know 20 of us in the room um, me and Martin were there um, representing uh, our employer as, a, as one of the many subcontractors involved in building this warehouse and there are all the other people there, the engineers and the architects and the construction team all sorts of important people um, all you know dead set on delivering for Tesco a, some, a project that was on time and on on cost and on quality so um, there was this massive um, impetus towards telling Tesco what they wanted to hear and so uh, we were uh, and when we had this discussion about the lobby part and um, you know, said oh well you know we can do this we can do that and I can remember Martin who refused to play the suit and tie game he, uh, he would make no concession to um, businessman chic um, as far as he was concerned um, he would wear what he liked including a, a raggedy old tweed hat but um, so we were sitting in this meeting and he <laughs> he took his, uh, his hat off and put it on the table and I think he actually thumped it and he said no we do need to do a watching brief on the park uh, and uh, everybody was sort of shocked and uh, was muttering and thinking oh well what does this mean you know does this mean things about what does this mean about time scale does it mean about the way they work uh, lots of uh, disquiet but he held his ground he said nope if you're going to destroy this we need to be there to check and uh, of course I agreed with him <laughs> And uh, they said, oh, well, okay, well, if we really have to, we will. Um, and so, uh, his willingness to be unpopular for a moment in a meeting was what led to the discovery of the Barbens Farm boat. Um, and so, to say, I mean, I can't remember offhand any equivalent moments for me of heroism, but uh, all the way through, um, that willingness to dig your heels in when your standards are under threat is an important trait and it's one that certainly the archaeologists I work with 
um, imbibed very early on and it's uh, I say very early on it's interesting I think again thinking about protectorists of course for years now probably 40 years now there's been a debate about um, people using metal detectors to find treasure as opposed to archaeologists who don't want them to do that not because we're killjoys not necessarily but because more than the things themselves what we care about is the information and if you uh, grab a handful of coins the Saxon coins or whatever um, well yes they're mildly interesting as objects um, depending on your um, particular feelings you know, I like I like bricks I'm not very interested in coins um, but yes yeah, so the, the coins have had their own sort of limited intrinsic interest um, from a manufacturing point of view or distribution or whatever but more than that they're important or interesting because of where they came from if they all came from one field is that telling you that there's a there's a site there waiting to be discovered um, or if they're just sprinkled from an area of miles around then perhaps not so actually knowing where things have come from is really important, very specifically where they come from. And also in terms of um, depth below the soil, um, again, detectorists argue that they don't dig very deep. They'll just go into the topsoil, that's the stuff that's been disturbed already. But um, certainly there have been cases recently where um, they seem to have dug half a metre down in order to get at the stuff digging through all sorts of layers which if they'd been excavated by archaeologists would have actually discovered, recovered significant additional information so um, as I say there's been this long battle between the detectorists and the archaeologists um, unfortunately the if you like the naive public approach is to side with the treasure finders that uh, there's a like there's a template newspaper story of the detectorist who goes out one night and discovers something amazing and isn't it exciting um, there's something very appealing about that as an idea so I think say the very word treasure you know captures that it's an interesting thing exciting story as opposed to, you know, archaeologists do some research, work out there might be something there and go and do it carefully and do their job and uh, at the end of it they announce their results. That's not a very exciting story, it's not really Dog Bites Man, is it? I mean, it is Dog Bites Man. Um, so, uh, so anyway, yes, so the, the, the point is, so that distinction between, you know, the interest in the finds as treasure, if you like, and the finds as information is, starts almost from day one, that the first day a 
and archaeologists, archaeologists works on site they will be retrieving the information and that you know again if you say well what's the best find or most valuable find you find people will talk about information not monetary value I mean if I had my way you wouldn't be able to sell old things at all um, they belong in museums or with whoever has them um, but having a market for them is unhelpful um, because it does encourage the worst instincts of um, protectorists and others um, not to absolve the archaeologists who um, certainly in the Mediterranean there's a long and sad tradition of um, archaeologists uh, funding their excavations by selling off some of their unwanted finds to uh, museums around the world um, or quite the collectors so um, so yeah so, but I always say it's almost from day one you know so it's not a question that ever comes up with how much is this worth well might tell you something same thing as saying it's worth something. Um, so coming back into town there, um, past, I can't remember the name of it now, it's a, a Georgian monstrosity of a house that um, was recently a nursing home. Before that it was a, a girls school I think, and I think before that originally it was a house. So it's one of these houses with the bay windows. Uh, one of the bays is clapped, so um, it's held up with timbers. So let's just see, it's got a planning application. Well, let's see what's going to happen. interesting it talks about labs oh I see yeah so basically they're going to knock it knock it flat and uh, um, build houses <coughs> which um, in some ways I say with a archaeological person we'll say that's sad but uh, I was looking at some stats recently I can't remember where Thing. I'm not very good at remembering things. Um, but when I grew up, how many people lived in, the, in Britain was a straightforward question. The answer was, as I recall, 55 million in uh, 1975. And uh, last time I looked, I think it's now something like 68 million. And uh, in a way, that that one set of numbers is enough to tell you everything that's wrong with uh, 
British society and the economy. Um, so yeah, so there's 13 million more people than there were 40 years ago. But, and this is the problem, there aren't 13 million more houses, or even 6 million more houses. Um, I will check the number, but it is a low number of houses that have been built. Which means that there are too many people chasing too few houses. Which means house prices always go up. Um, and if you want to explain Brexit as part of a long-term culture thing, I would put the blame <coughs> on the housing crisis that I was at a training course they were talking about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, classic triangle yesterday and uh, I know yet again it's a theory there's issues with it but for now just to say one of the core requirements it says is food, drink, shelter you need those to sort those out before you can live any kind of life and the problems of poor people particularly but you know often people end up poor at some point in their life but anyway the fundamental question is where can we live and if the answer is that the choice is between finding a large deposit and then a large amount of money to pay a mortgage or to pay a large amount of money out in rent then people will find it difficult to feel comfortable within an economy where they're struggling continually to find themselves somewhere to eat, somewhere to live and then some for their relatives as well um, and it's sort of facile to point the finger at the right to buy and sell off of council houses that didn't help but the old tradition of council houses um, allowed people to rely on the provision of housing if they needed it at a reasonable rent um, and without that safety net um, people who aren't in a position to get onto the property ladder as they say um, will not feel very comfortable and I think that that is what fundamentally is what is driving driving what's, uh, what we're supposed to talk about as being legitimate concerns that about immigration that people do feel well there aren't enough houses and there aren't enough jobs um, why is this a problem well the fact there's more people doesn't help um, and so 
I believe that uh, if we actually built enough houses so that as in other countries um, different models um, more of a, where apartment living is the standard so there's a range of different solutions been adopted around the world but this is an unusual place having an entire country that is its economy is built on ever inflating house prices and it's not surprising that um, a financial crash happened when you would have this pressure cooker situation where house prices were rising faster than income and so people were Finance companies spent put their efforts into devising mechanisms which would allow people to commit themselves to mortgages in order to buy houses at the prices that were being charged um, beyond what they could actually reasonably afford in terms of repaying. And uh, this was a a mechanism that actually worked okay for a while and would continue to work as long as everybody was on the same page but it didn't matter so much about the long-term repayment of the mortgage or maturity of the endowment mortgage um, because you were likely to sell at a profit and therefore you would be able to bank the profit and pay that towards your next house. So, uh, so as long as houses, house prices were rising and people were moving, you could almost forget about the long-term realities of these financial instruments. And unfortunately, as we know, um, that comes unstuck. <clears throat> but when people stop buying houses, people are stuck and house prices fall, there's negative equity and the whole thing goes haywire. Uh, so, although I'm just as sad as anyone else, when you see another field covered in, covered in new houses. I, uh, in general, I can't really argue. I uh, say, I think it would be, everybody would be a lot happier if uh, we suddenly built a lot more houses or accommodation of some sort um, that would just derail this British obsession with having a mortgage, having a house as being an essential part of life. So just a quick postscript of uh, things I mentioned while I was walking, but I've had a chance to look up now. The first one 
is that uh, yes actually medieval leprosy um, was uh, very common in the uh, early part of the medieval period um, by about 1300 it was becoming less of a problem uh, I think because uh, uh, the population had developed uh, immunity towards it um, but yeah so it's, it was slightly earlier than, than I said and one of the interesting things about it is that uh, lepers were considered to be going through the um, trials of purgatory while still alive and so they were considered to be uh, holy um, since they'd be going straight to heaven when they died um, without having to um, go to purgatory in between um, so that was uh, there was a, you know, that association between uh, religious practice and uh, and hospitals sort of started there um, I have checked and Newport has got still got a museum and I believe the Barlands farm boat is still on display there